Hi, welcome to this special episode of the Frankentech Podcast. Um, I'm George Barsanas, and in this episode, we recorded this over a Google Hangout so that we could see um, a lot of what he's talking about in this episode about what the Moonshot Laboratory is. So there'll be a couple times in this episode while I will stop it um, just to describe what I see. Um, so if you don't have time to watch the video, which it will be in the show notes, um, you could watch that and be able to um, get a more in-depth on the images he's talking about or just the layout of the whole thing. So here it is, the Moonshot Laboratory with Brendan. All right, welcome to Frankenstein Podcast with uh, Jacob. Erwin can't be here today, and I want to introduce a very special guest, um, someone that I met in Wyoming, which is not anywhere I thought I would ever come out of uh, with the kind of story that I got out of there. And I know for some of you that have been bugging me about this, this is the Moonshot episode of talking about um, the idea and kind of the concept. So we got a chance to, to bring uh, Brendan in, and he's going to tell us about it. But um, I spent probably the best night demolition derby and then after that uh, being able to listen to the wee hours of the morning until we got kicked out of was it uh red red line what were they, what I, think, we? I think i i got kicked out so <laughs> let's let's be fair okay thank you for taking a bullet for me but that was definitely me <laughs> but you i i could not get over the story and the concept and i still to this day remember that the thing that's wrong with education is uh me and that's right. <laughs> uh, you put that in a way that I've never heard it before. So uh, I want to kind of give the listeners a chance to hear uh, what what your Moonshot Incubator is and, and kind of what being the whole story behind that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's been quite a quite a run. Um, we're currently in our uh, our prototype year right now. Um, we have a couple of partners. Uh, the first one is our, our local uh, community partner, which is really at the heart of the entire program, because when we start shifting school away from traditional archetypes and spaces towards a more community-centered approach to education, you have to have very strong partnerships on the ground. So um, our our partner and you know our boss on a lot of this stuff is Education Incubator um, with uh, Dr. Mickey Tamita and, um, and, and Stephanie Wurgefeldt. Um, and they've just been amazing, amazing local leaders that have helped to take and shape the concept um, to meet the needs of the local community, the needs of the local culture, and most importantly, um, the needs of the local kids here. Because that's, that's always been our goal at the beginning, right, is we have, to, we have to move away from national standards and even statewide standards and really address the culture, the needs, and the opportunities that exist in all the unique communities around the country and, and ultimately the world. So our partners with Education Incubator, and of course, our very special partners is Kamehameha Schools, um, which if you're not familiar, Kamehameha Schools, I believe at this point, has the largest private endowment of any private school in the world, including Harvard and Princeton and Yale and all those guys. Um, and they have a very unique mission um, that was set forward by their founder a long time ago um, to serve the needs of, of local Native Hawaiian kids to make sure that um, they had an opportunity to be as successful, if not more successful, in this highly competitive world that, that we're, we're, we're getting deeper and deeper into. So they've, they've been amazing in, in supporting us in our prototype year and, and funding a lot of the technology and the, the time and, and allowing us to use this absolutely amazing space because, uh, you know, the space, while um, not the most important thing, is a very important thing, especially in our concept as, as we've designed it. So maybe um, 
maybe before we get going, just a quick tour of the space if you want to see it. It's not huge, um, but we like to think it's pretty special. And then we can dive into um, what we're trying to layer on top of the space and the things um, and what our ultimate goals are. And you design the space or is the space kind of like what they no, gave you? It's, it's funny. So um, Kamehameha Schools is one of the largest landowners here in Hawaii as well. Um, and I know there's this there's this area of town, it's called Mo'ili'ili, which is right next to the University of Hawaii. And for a number of years, they've been looking to um, to revamp it. And they own most of the buildings, and they're looking for a way to, to take this area into the next generation, make it a real hub of commerce and um, education and technology and things like that. So they built this space, man, about a year, a year and a half ago. Um, and, you know, they looked at the Stanford Design School, and they looked at some other schools and on the mainland and local schools here, and they were looking for the best practices and they built it. Um, and people just started using it as meeting space. Um, they didn't, you know, they built it and, and no one was really coming because nobody knew what to do with this, this kind of space. Um, and we were lucky enough. Um, it was serendipitous. We had some friends in the community and one meeting led to another. And, um, you know, we found, we found some partners in Kamehameha schools that was willing to take a risk on us. Um, but most importantly, take a risk on the kids that they're servicing. Um, because as you know, our system is very risk averse. Our teachers are very risk averse. And ultimately that leads to our kids being risk averse. Um, so we needed somebody to jump in with us and they did. And it's, it's so far so good. We've been really proud of the program. Yeah. So it's just, of course, there's your screen right there. We, uh, that's called the, uh, uh, shoot, it's the, um, the moonshot screen. No, well, yeah, it's got the moonshot screen up there right now. Um, it's a special communication setup. It's got about 12 LEDs, 4k LEDs, um, hooked up to Alienware and it leverages Sage 2 software, um, to create a really robust virtual learning and sharing space. Um, so that's at the front. Um, but then we have all of the furniture of course is on wheels, uh, mobile whiteboards. We have a kitchen. Um, we have three uh, virtual reality studios. Um, here's the bathroom. Probably not interested in that. Uh, we have three virtual reality studios. We have HTC Vives, um, as well as um, a couple of other systems. And all these systems are managed by the kids, and the kids do all the training on it. Uh, here's another one of our meeting rooms. There's my son taking a break, eating some lunch, try and look interesting, build something, kid. <laughs> um, he just, he's all petered out from, uh, working with some, uh, Arduino and Adafruit wearable technology today. So as you hear, uh, Brendan is walking around, um, the laboratory. Now I want to kind of describe this for you guys. Um, for those of you that have been in, in a, in a, in a bigger Starbucks is what I envisioned it when I saw it. Um, behind him, you heard him talk about the TVs. Um, it's not one TV, it's multiple TVs grouped together, which is different. As soon as he showed it to us, um, I couldn't take my eyes off it because you have um, multiple screens all sh all framed together like a puzzle piece to show you a bigger image. So that was pretty amazing to see behind him. And as he's talking about the different layouts that you see, um, I had an opportunity this year to go to two different places that reminded me a lot of what I saw in this episode. 
Um, one of them was actually going to the Google headquarters in Mountain View and being able to see how hands-on everything there was from um, the whiteboards on the desks, on the walls, everywhere. There was code written everywhere, thoughts, um, projects worked on. Um, everything was interactive and everything was on wheels. Um, the other location that I got a chance to spend some time in Minnesota was uh, the Flipgrid headquarters. And their um, layout is very similar to what I saw here. So one of the things I want to kind of point out that I saw here was that it didn't look like a traditional classroom. Um, you didn't have everything facing one way. Everything was facing in. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when we set up our classroom sometimes, we're setting it up so where we can keep an eye on everything. Everything here is like an open space. Um, everything's on wheels. Um, everything is is separated to work areas. And so um, just looking at it from the get-go, it reminded me of this is a place to work and not a place to go to school. And I don't know if that um, makes sense, but uh, just think of it as Starbucks. When you go to Starbucks, there's a big table you can sit at, but there's a lot of different areas you can do work at. Except this place, instead of having a place to go get coffee, you have a kitchen, which I thought was really interesting that they had there, but they also had um, workstations with the, if you saw the 3D imaging, uh, a row of uh, 3D printers, um, things that I thought were pretty cool. And I didn't get to see the third floor, so as you hear Brennan walking through the layout, you see that he's going from two different levels. Um, he's going in inside of rooms because there's individual workstations that you can be at. So there's a lot of cool things if you want to go back and watch the episode. And it's at about three minutes uh, is where he starts to go into the walkthrough of this whole layout. All right, back to Brendan. So second floor, the mez. So this is the space that the kids really love. Uh, we've got a bay of 3D printers, laser cutters. The kids have been working around with symmetry and mathematics. Everything's a whiteboard, including the tables. Um, we've got coding stations. We have 3D imaging technology through HP, which is pretty awesome. Um, there's a third floor that we currently aren't allowed to go to because it's the roof. But we dream, we dream of making it... Um, we want to launch fleets of drones off of the roof, but we're still dealing with legal. Uh, they, they're taking risks with us, but not that many. <laughs> so we'll see. But, um, but yeah, that's the space. And we're fortunate to have the space. Um, cause you know, one of the pillars of our program is that we feel like we have to move outside of school to affect school. How many kids are coming to you right now? So in our prototype year, we have... Um, we have four core schools. Um, one school is University Laboratory School, where we originally researched a lot of these concepts um, and built teacher training programs and curricula. And we have about, we have one full class, it's called an ethno-STEM class. Um, and ethno-STEM uses traditional knowledge to try and solve um, current problems. And we're helping to connect ancient wisdom and the ancient wisdom that, that they find valuable to current technology to try and solve these really crushing issues. So we have about 30 kids there. And then we have another core group of kids who really started the program with us when they were in sixth grade. Uh, and they're called the Moonshot Five. And they've been following with us this whole time. In fact, one of the reasons that we felt we had to move out of traditional spaces is because these kids had these enormous ideas. 
And they were trying to solve these big problems, but they were doing it in antiquated, you know, 19th century, you know, hallways that you can't, we would plug toasters or coffee machines into the, into the wall and it would short out the entire school. So, so infrastructure has been a real issue for us. And this, we knew we had to get away from that. And we were lucky to find a community center um, that was able to support us here. So that's been a really key part because um, I know I've, I've watched your old show and, you know, and it's Jacob, is that right? Yeah. So I really, really love your honest critiques of some of the things that we may be trying to do. And I know a lot of the critiques center around, you know, self-selected kids or, you know, kids in private schools who are already going to make it or, um, that one of the biggest issues that we have is economic equality and things like that. So those were our concerns as well, is that um, these kids weren't getting a shot. So when it came down to student selection for the program, A, we knew they had to be a majority Native Hawaiian because of our funder, but also because um, it's a traditionally hard to teach um, group of kids. So we felt if we could try and tackle some of the biggest issues early, that that would prepare us to spread this program to places like Oakland or Houston or, you know, um, South Florida or wherever it is where we could take our lessons learned from adapting to certain cultural needs and values and try and scale those in much more different indigenous or, um, you know, ethnically diverse um, regions or areas. So that's been two birds, one stone for us here. So our kids are majority Native Hawaiian. We have a Native Hawaiian charter school, Halau Kamana. We have the University Laboratory School um, with their Ethno-STEM program, the Moonshot Five, and then Roosevelt High School also has a program um, where a lot of the kids who, um, who are in the program live in what's called Hawaiian Homestead, um, and that's land reserved specifically for Native Hawaiian people, um, and uh, they're right down the street. So um, we have a, a really nice group of kids. I say we do about 100 kids every week or two in prototype, but then we have a number of other schools that we're working with that are outside the core program. Um, Voyager Charter School, Hawaii Technology Academy, also public charters, and they've been sending sometimes 30 to 60 extra kids per month. So um, we're, 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 doing, we're doing a pretty good click, especially um, just being in our prototype year. So I guess, I guess uh, and then I, I appreciate that uh, selection bias addressing that. And I don't, I don't mean to sound overly critical. It's just George and I kind of have this, uh, this back and forth where George comes, like he's always super excited. And positive. <laughs> and then I'm always like the Debbie Downer. And it's not that I'm necessarily uh, down about it, but I always like when I, uh, that's just the way I react to that enthusiasm. Sometimes I'm playing devil's advocate. And also I'm kind of curious because sometimes I get questions or things and I don't know necessarily how to respond to them. So I don't mean to sound critical uh, with, with the questions, but I'm just wondering like, because I look at like, I don't know if you're familiar with John Hattie or Marzano's research on what's effective for um, in terms of curriculum education for students to be successful. And this is using traditional measures, but like Hattie's work shows that technology is not a factor. That's something that I run into um, just because I'm obviously in, tech, in the technology field and I believe it's important that it gets to be successful. And sometimes I think it's a limitation in the measure um, because sometimes the measures aren't looking at things beyond just the core academic component. So it's a limited measure. But that's not, that doesn't mean it's necessarily not valuable as well. I kind of think of it as kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where reading and writing is kind of like food and water. 
And then technology and the moonshot kind of stuff is kind of like self-actualization, which I'd love for all the kids to get there, but not at the expense of the food and the water. It's like so, if a, a kid's starving in Africa, you want to give them food and water before you teach them meditation classes, if that makes, if that makes sense. So, so we, we flip that. You know, the kids in Africa are starving. We ask them to solve their problem, right? We don't want to give them the food and water. We want to put them in a position where they can find it themselves and provide for not just themselves, but the community. And we're talking in the abstract here, but I think, you know, there's a, a lot to unpack, and, I, and I, I want to address all of it. I think the first one is the idea of being critical, right? So we have a few core principles that we want the kids to learn. Um, as they go through this journey. Um, and the first one is design thinking, but it's more empathetic design. We have a real focus on empathetic design um, and ethnographic research studies to make sure that they understand root causes of their problem, as well as the users and community that they're going to be impacting with whatever problem that they solve. So we want them to take that empathetic approach first and foremost. Um, but when it comes to being critical of each other's ideas, we've created this educational environment where we don't feel free to fail. And because we don't feel free to fail, constructive criticism is often less left on the ground, on the cutting room ground, or we have to spend two or three minutes apologizing for the criticism that we're about to lay down. So we have, um, when students embark on big projects to solve these, these huge problems of their day, we take them through what's, what's called a pre-mortem. Are you folks familiar with pre-mortems? I'm familiar with post-mortems. <laughs> okay. Once, once, once the body's on the table, once you have a dead body on the slab, it's too late. Okay. Right? You've already spent the time. You've already spent the resources. Um, you've failed. Right? So we walk kids and teachers through this process called a pre-mortem where we have them assume in three years your idea is dead on arrival. Like it's dead. Like you, you have failed completely. It hasn't worked, whatever your idea is. Um, we have to imagine all the possible ways we do this really abstract quantity over quality experience where you put up every single possible reason that this idea could fail. Then you find the top 10 and then you figure out if any one of those problems is insurmountable. And if it is, you stop before you even start. So we wanted to put our, um, I want to, I don't want to swear our money where our mouths are. So the first experience that we had when we took teachers through this professional development experience is as part of the pre-mortem at the end of their second day of PD, we asked them to kill the moonshot laboratory idea. <laughs> and, and we told them, and we told them if you could kill it, then we'd stop right now. So we've done that in a number of different places and nobody's been able to kill it yet. And we've had some people who are real skeptics. I mean, talk about teachers, teachers in Hawaii, especially are skeptics. You look at our pay rates, you know, you'd understand why. So, so we expect us to not only be critical of ourselves, but be critical of each other. Because if you're not being critical of each other, then you're setting each up for, for failure. And we need to create that environment where we, ex we expect criticism, and if somebody's not criticizing our ideas or testing our ideas, then they're really at fault as much as we are for when we fail. And that's, one of the, that's the kind of environment that we're trying to create here. Um, so ho hopefully I answered that question, and you had a question right at the tail end of that that was important. I guess what I'm wondering about is, uh, so there's the part where you want to inspire. Like I think about like for my daughter, um, I want her to be inspired, and I want my goal for her is to have something that she feels uh, some, so you find some sort of job where she makes a positive difference in some sort of way in the world. 
but she's engaged and she enjoys what she does. Like she feels positive about what she's doing with her life. And so that's like the, the ultimate goal for all the students. But I think sometimes my concern is that sometimes, um, when people fixate on the big exciting things, they lose track of the more boring, uh, mundane skills that might also be important for the kids to be successful. And so I'm wondering, like, do you guys do like a traditional academic measures? Um, and if so, well, how are you finding the results for your students compared to um, similar students in uh, more traditional programs? Okay, so, yeah, that's interesting. Um, what we've figured out is that classrooms, teachers, and schools probably waste about 40% of, of in-class time. 40% of a week you could just throw away. Most of the, the core content areas that you're talking about, the reading, writing, arithmetic, we could easily fit that into four days a week and have plenty of time to spare, okay? But then what we lay on top of that are these non-elective electives that we want kids to do. You have to learn a language. You have to go learn clarinet. You will do PE. You will do the things that we prescribe you, but you can choose from this list of four. So we want to throw all that away. So yes, it's important that they have a foundation for those skills, and we want them to have those skills. So we give schools that participate, you get eight days, we get one. And we're going to take your kids here, those, that one day a week, they can repurpose all of that traditional content towards creating these 20% projects that solve problems. And our hope is, is that through their experience of building these 20% projects, that they're going to start formulating knowledge gaps, that they're going to realize that there's a distance between what they want to do and what they know how to do. And we want them to go back to their traditional schools to close those gaps for the next week so that they can continue advancing their project. So we like to think that not only are we still allowing them to learn the traditional stuff, but that it's repurposed in a way that's meaningful and reinforces the importance of it when they go back to their traditional schools looking for the answers that they need. So that's, that's the first part, hopefully, of your question. The second part was the idea that the world needs ditch diggers too. And, and, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, right? To a certain extent. I mean, we're, okay, um, soapbox, ready? Um, so the kids who are in elementary school now, we just had an hour of code and code.org is a big thing. And the whole country of South Korea has just decided that every student will learn coding every single year in, in South Korea because coding is going to be good for the economy and all these things, blah, blah, blah. The truth is, is that our kids that are in elementary school right now, um, when they graduate from high school or college, coding will at best be a blue collar job. And at worst, won't exist at all because of all the artificial intelligence we need to create code is going to exist. And we just, it won't, this won't be a job, right? So if you imagine that future, and that's a real future, like we have fewer and fewer needs as we create more and more technology. And as we push towards this I everything idea where you push a button and you get your food and you get your clothes and, you know, whether that's Amazon or Google, whatever it is, all of a sudden, the skills that we need to survive in the real world start getting smaller and smaller. So what are the skills that's going to differentiate us from the machine or from the AI, right? And that's collaboration, it's communication, compassion, empathy, creativity, and entrepreneurship. So when we talk about the person who wants to go up and get a middle-class job and do all those things, we, we wholly support that child. But we think that they can be happier doing those same jobs with an entrepreneurial flair where they're creating something new instead of just doing the same thing. So we really want to ingrain that in our kids is that, listen, the moonshot 
accomplishing the moonshot, sending a, a rocket to the moon, that's great. But we know 90% of our kids, 95% are not going to do it. So the moonshot for us is not the accomplishment. It's the process and the product, right? For a student to be willing to even try to do that, to even attempt to do that, knowing full well that they could fail miserably in public, that's the moonshot for us. If we had a generation of kids willing to take those risks to solve these huge community problems, we've accomplished it. Because along the way of learning through that failure, learning through applying technology, getting to understand your community better, getting to understand fellow man, you're going to be a better person overall. And oh yeah, you can learn all that reading and writing and stuff. You know, we have four goals of the week. And uh, I don't mean to be, like I said, and I guess I'm, I'm maybe being overly uh, apologetic for it. I don't, I don't mean to sound like a, a curmudgeon about the whole thing because I do buy into it. I was telling George earlier, my high school had an engineering academy and it wasn't exactly what you're talking about. We would Because we, we all did the same project, but it was a fair amount of creativity and how we approached all that stuff. But it was the only time I was excited about going to school in my entire K-12 experience. And that was, and I saw the, I mean, I was a decent student regardless, but there's other kids that were bombing and that was the thing they put all their passion and actually made them, I, we actually saw their, their trajectory in school turn around just as their peers, because they're actually coming on weekends to work on their projects and they wanted to be successful because they get dropped out of the program if they didn't do it. So, I mean, I, I believe in all that, um, but I am, I am curious, do you guys do, I mean, so it sounds, so I guess it sounds like you, you start in middle school with this program when the kids have a little more flexibility in their schedule. Is that right? Yeah, so we have a bunch of different models currently this year though, in our prototype, we, we started in middle school when we were down the street at a research institution that allowed us to do crazy insane things like that. Now um, we're nine to 12 looking to drill down deeper. We have, we have experiential programs with middle school and elementary school kids that come maybe on a field trip once a, a month to get started thinking in, in a moonshot way to start, um, you know, feeling more empowered and things like that. But right now our focus is on high school. Um, but we want, we want 20% time, hundred percent time eventually right? With a fully integrated curriculum where the kids learn all the things that they need to, but also are able to do these amazing projects or at least just attempt and fail it. So, so going back to your, your question, the data that we're collecting out of the gate right now is very qualitative for a number of reasons. Um, we're not aware of any other program that has been doing it this way. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a core curriculum for giving the training and working side by side with kids so we can gauge a lot of information from some of those quali qualitative surveys. The problem that we have when we attempt a learning model that is truly student-centered, where you are constantly teaching from behind, but trying to be anticipatory of needs and wants, is that a lot of this plane is being built on the fly. Yeah, we have a developmental scaffolded approach to helping kids go from you know design thinking into rapid prototyping, um, into connecting with community folks to try and help them actualize their thing. But every kid or every team of kids is going to have this different idea. And we have to start trying to backfill to make sure that we can build that scaffold around them so that they don't either don't go too far or don't fail prematurely. And that in itself, creating that, that's a, that's a curriculum in itself to know how and when to do that. You know, as opposed to the canned, I'm going to decide what you're going to learn and when you're going to learn it. Until that happens, you're not going to learn anything, which is where we've been in American education for 120 years, right? I would say without a doubt, I've learned more this year about kids 
an opportunity and the potential of young people to solve community problems. I've learned more than they've, than they've learned. Definitely. It's been an experience. And you, am I, am I correct? you you focus pretty much, you, you, you occupy the extracurricular space. It's normally P and the other stuff. You leave the ELA math content to the main primary school. And the goal is that through these stretch projects, 20% projects that they're going to, uh, not only learn the valuable life lessons and be able to be an impact on their community and become empowered individuals, but they'll also gain some relevancy for their skill gaps they might have in their more traditional academic areas. Cause they might want to do some sort of, they might want to talk to the city council about a project they want to do. And they realize that their speaking skills are, they struggle with public speaking. They struggle and they have a written proposal and they realize their written proposal isn't as good as it should be for this professional setting. And this, these are, you just named two things that we just recently went through, right? So one of the clients for the kids is the city and county water supply. Um, we have a really dire situation with our Alawai watershed. It is shambles. It is disgusting. It's messy. If you go swimming in it, you're coming out with four eyes and, and three arms. It's terrible. Okay. But the, kid, the, the, the adults haven't done anything to solve the problem. They just put band-aids on it. So the kids are working to do that. So they had to meet with a client. They had to meet with the city and county and do those things. We have another team that's going after a grant for one of their projects. I'm, you know, I'm 41 years old. I worked in a research institution and I suck at grant writing. Try getting a 15 year old to do it. But then we were amazed to say, oh, they're asking for help. A 15 year old wants to write a grant or a research grant to fund their project because it's meaningful. And those same kids, what is it? December 28th, it's winter break. Those same kids came in today looking for more help to write their grant. It's Friday <laughs> or it's Thursday. It's Thursday and on winter break. Yeah. I mean, like, like this, this doesn't happen in traditional spaces, you know? Um, so, so, so those needs emerge as their ideas advance and we do a hell of a lot of just in time learning. We, we had a speech coach come in here the other day to teach them how to pitch we went through a mini pitch fest to get them ready to pitch to community members. Um, and some of them already got funding for some of their ideas. Um, and what they didn't get in funding, they got expert help so that they could, so that experts are coming in. And I know it was, I remember one of your questions that was asked was, you know, how do you choose teachers for this? We don't. There's basically two people that run this program and it's myself and Dr. Tamita. We're the directors here. Our teachers are the community. They're the people who come in and work with the kids. Um, Perfect example. I'll, I'll, I can share my screen, right? Yeah. So one of the, one of the schools here, Halau Kumana, their, their regular project um, in, at their school is called Papa Va'an, and that's around um, the Polynesian voyaging canoe, with, which if you're not familiar with, um, explored and, and populated over 10 million square miles of, of Pacific Ocean, uh, something like 500 years before Columbus found America. And they did it without any navigational instruments, um, using the stars, using you know the sun, swells, um, the wind. And so because there are no navigational in instruments, you have to really connect yourself to nature and connect yourself to your surroundings. Um, and one of the connections that these kids are trying to make between this ancient wisdom of Polynesian navigation um, and, and the future of education of an entire um, generation of Polynesian navigators is how do we use this technology to do something like this? So these guys have been learning about this thing called a Hawaiian star compass and the star compass basically um, it allows navigators to, to chart their course. 
Um, and the kids have been going down and learning from experts and they've been learning from master navigators. Um, here's one of them there. I think believe that's Uncle Bruce. Um, but what they lack is this ability to create um, apps. These are ninth grade kids, right? But they have an idea because they we have Google Glass. You remember that ancient invention, right? <laughs> um, but the coolest thing on Google Glass was that you had the star map app that was on there and using GPS and compass, like you could look around and you could see the stars overlaid on your eye, even if it was daytime. And the kids saw this technology and they said, Hey, what if we can put the Hawaiian star compass on there and the Hawaiian star lines and constellations, and we can change the names of the stars to Hawaiian names. And then we can help teach a new generation of navigators how to navigate using just these stars and star compass by putting this Google glass on their eye. But there was no, they, they're not app developers, you know, they're, they're ninth graders. So we were lucky. We reached out, we connected with this guy here, Fotis, and he's in Greece. And he did almost the same thing in Greece with the sky map. And he took it and he translated a lot of it to Greek. And, um, you know, he built the Greek app version of this and he's been working with the kids. So the kids have been the designers and he has been a developer that they've hired to design, to, to create their designs and this is the first prototype coming out. If you remember SkyMap, this is what the kids and him created together. How did they get in contact with this guy? So that's one of, that's one of the things that we do. We, we, we are the connective tissue for these kids, right? We work with them every day. And then when we find out what their needs are, we try and backfill or do some just-in-time learning. So if, if you look here, what we realized is that we needed somebody with SkyMap technology um, to try and do some translations. And if you look, all, everything's in English or you have the, the Latin names of it, things like that. And per the design of these kids, what this guy has done on the other side of the world, he's, he's taken their suggestions and he's added, if you look right down here, that's an additional layer that he's added to SkyMap. And when you press on that layer, you'll notice now you have... The names on the compass are changing to the Hawaiian names. All right, so quick timeout, uh, just to describe what I see so you guys can get a visual of what he's talking about. Um, the the Hawaiian star map or the stargazing that he is talking about, um, the kids created a lot of things that you can see. Um, uh, video is at 30 minutes, um, at the 30-minute mark, I mean. Um, they are taking the Hawaiian star um, uh, map um, and then being able to create a 3D imaging, um, creating uh, star lines that they're able to make something that is from their past um, real and relevant. And especially with the, the app developer that they're working with, um, they're using the star map um, eyewear that was in Google Glass. And they've created an extension with it with this help of the work they've done that, that they've taken something that is very culturally important to them and they've actually made it um, something that anyone can see and has made it real to them so if you have a moment to watch that um, that part of the video uh, at 30 minutes it starts out um, kind of shows you a progression of what how they put something like this together so this is for us this is kind of the example of how kids can connect with community members whether it's here or abroad to fill those gaps so they can realize the potential of their dreams, right? Not everybody has to be an app developer, but we do want everybody to be a designer in some sense. 
And that means designing apps. That means designing solutions for the community. That means designing dinner for, you know, their family, whatever it is, we want empathetic design to be at the heart of everything that they do. We're facilitators. We start, we like to think that we're consultants for the kids um, in their ideas and that, you know, they're our clients and we're there to help them guide them to help them create, you know, charts, but also to connect them with local community network, uh, a community expert network um, to support their ideas. Um, there's a lot, you know, we use the analogy. It's like, you know, especially in this first year, I mean, we would be insane to just set them free and let them do whatever they want because there'd be tons of, 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 of failure and, and it would just demoralize them. So we really see this year as you know, uh, in bowling, when you can put those little inflatable bumpers around the side, <laughs> right? And then you got the kid and he can close his eyes and throw it down there, but he's going to get a strike, right? One way or the other. We want to make sure that we put these kids, in the, we get put them in an environment where they have the biggest opportunity for success, right? There are failures along the way. Some of them may not accomplish the things that they want to, but if we are able to connect them to resources, expertise, funding, grants, whatever it is, we're going to go out of our way to do that. It's not going to be a lack of our effort to support them. But it, it's changed our role as teachers. We listen more than we tell. Wow. So just walk me through. I just joined. It's only a one-time entry program, right? I can't just, you don't get kids to just show up out of the blue. <laughs> George can't reapply and start high school over again. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say at the beginning of the year, I come in um, and how do how does this program start? How do I start on this path? I have to come up with a twenty percent project that I want to work on, or are you giving me that that pre mortem uh, uh, talk? Um, so, so we 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 understand that moonshot thinking and moonshot problem solving needs to be a scaffolded approach. No kid is ready emotionally, psychologically, or from a skill perspective to do the things that we think that they can do. Right? I mean, we don't expect a one-year-old to be able to ride a bike any less than when we expect somebody brand new to the program to go out there fearlessly, find problems to solve and find all the resources to solve it. Um, it's just not, it's just not possible. So what we've tried to develop is a scaffolded approach. Um, eventually at scale, it's going to be from sixth grade and the sixth grade heavy focus on empathetic design, design thinking, and they start solving mini moonshots at their school. Seventh grade, they start branching out into the community. We layer in additional innovation concepts for them, some more technical skills, um, and have them take a little bit more of a lead in going out there. Um, eighth grade, we really see, because we do grades six through eight most often. Eighth grade, they start going free, a lot more free in choosing their own projects, but also serving as mentors for those sixth and seventh graders to try and create that continuous um, environment of support and camaraderie and collaboration. Um, then grades nine through 12, if they've already been through three years of the program, um, we fully expect them to try and, you know, come up with three, four, 10 different projects that they want, but really in consultation with us or additional experts, right? So we are project consultants in talking with them about, you know, what they need, what they want to do, things like that. So it becomes truly facilitative. How do you see this program scaling? Like, I mean, do you see this something that could happen and and for, uh, be an opportunity for every school in the United States? And in terms of the cost of running it and all that sort of sort of thing, because I mean, obviously, you have a lot of expertise. The professor has a lot of expertise, and you guys are heavily involved. Um, so there's a lot of capacity that needs to exist 
for people to operate the program and, and also just the equipment and facilities, all that stuff. Yeah. So there's, there's a few things. I think we have a number of concepts built in. Um, uh, part of it is our um, exponential expansion. Um, we see an opportunity. It's not necessarily a train the trainer is that when a new community engages in um, a moonshot lab of their own, that they have to spend time at, uh, during a sabbatical engaging themselves at, you know, ground zero or moonshot lab one or two or whatever it is so that they come, they get the experience, they get the training and they're ready to go back. And through a, a, a support role from us, they're able to start their own program. We firmly believe that the communities that will start this in will have the community experts necessary to support the kids. We believe that, right? Um, the challenge that we have is getting schools to accept it. And, and I'm, I'm just going to blow this whole thing up. I'll be totally honest with you. The reason we came up with this idea was we, we had gotten so frustrated. We've trained about 6,000 teachers over here over the last few years. And it's, and it doesn't matter how good a program is or how popular it is, um, or, or how many pockets of success you have every year in every state, in every district, um, you know, the, the rug gets pulled out from under teachers, whether it's a new evaluation system, whether it's a new curriculum, a new principal, whatever it is. And, and us adults, and this is what George was, was saying, we've known the best way to teach kids for the last hundred years, but somehow we've made it worse every single year. So I, for one, have given up on adults completely. And I've seen that firsthand in our ability or our, our efforts to transform the Hawaii education system. Um, so if adults can't do it and the legislators can't do it, they can't create the laws necessary, we can't create the budgets necessary, we can't do this, my best and last bet is on the kids. So in all honesty, this moonshot lab or whatever you want to call it, for, for some of us, is really this Trojan horse to completely disrupt the traditional American education system using the voices of kids. Because after they spend 20% of their time at the Moonshot Laboratory getting super empowered, when they start, when they start meaning something, right? I mean, we have a rule. We're not asking kids what they want to be when they grow up, because that's one of the most demeaning questions that you can ask a child. And we, we think it's something benign, but what we're telling them is they have to wait to matter. At the Moonshot Lab, you matter now. You matter now. Even if you fail at something, we're giving you the opportunity to do that. So we expect that in an ultra-empowering environment like that, we're going to create an army of agentic students who are going to go back to their traditional classrooms that next week, and we want to have a dead poet society moment where they're standing on their desks demanding that their teachers and their administrators and their parents and their legislators create an education system that empowers them to, to cure cancer, to create a car that runs on water, or to fix the water that's right down the street. So that's our bet that we can create an environment that will help kids to realize that potential and they become the catalyst for change that will push and change the American education system. And that I'll make that bet a hundred times out of a hundred, even if I lose it a hundred times. So what do you, what do you think about um, other education systems around the world? Cause when I think of like, I don't know if you've read the book or heard of the book, the smartest kids in the world, but a lot of the countries that have a lot of success are heavily centralized and heavily, heavily legislated in terms of their educational programs. Like you look at a lot of the Asian countries and the Nordic countries and like, even like I was talking to a teacher who's uh, visiting uh, from um, Scotland and he's like, you mean every school district can choose their own curriculum? He's like, that's crazy. He's like in, in England, 
they give us the curriculum and then we are trained on how to implement it. And so it's in a lot of other countries is much more centralized in terms of the approach and the standards and all that stuff. And they, they typically have better results because I'm not, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I think your idea is, you know, I think the whole moonshot laboratory is great, but when it comes to the other four days of the week, I think the United, one of the issues in the United States is everyone's reinventing the wheel constantly on how to teach the core subject material and the, the states are fighting over whether or not to adopt the common core and whether or not it's liberal propaganda or conservative propaganda and all this nonsense that gets in the way. But really, to me, the countries that have it figured out in terms of how to teach the more traditional skills are the countries that have it. It's heavily focused on the adults in terms of in like very high quality teacher preparation programs and very uh, and they actually have a lot, typically larger class size and more time for peer observation of teachers. So the teachers, it's a mastery model. We're not against that. We're doing the same thing. I think it's just what we're teaching them is different. We're, we're, they're in, their job as part of their professional development is that they're going to go through the PD, but then they're going to bring their kids and they're going to work side by side on 20% projects. They're going to be partners in that experience so that they can understand the kids and understand what their needs are so they can go back in partnership to their traditional classrooms and they can work together to solve those problems on those four days. And I do, I do take issue with the idea that, you know, that other countries or, or, or with centralized systems are outperforming. I think so China, for one, all the test scores are coming out of the, the, the population capitals, and it's mostly Shanghai. Those are those are selected kids to compete, right? Um, I've I actually taught in public school in Japan, um, and I can tell you that it, it is an absolute disaster, um, and for for a number of reasons. Um, and I have two kids that started going through the public school system in Japan, um, and every day they 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 thank me and that we got out of there because there's a lot of issues that arise culturally or from a nationalism perspective, I think for us, at least personally, but I can't speak for anybody else, the model I'm most impressed with is New Zealand. And um, if you look at their standards and their national curriculum, it's about that thick. Um, they're heavily weighted towards entrepreneurism, but they're also a very small country, so they can be more nimble. Um, I think one of the root problems of our school is that we've decided to break up education into these deliberate, dedicated terms from K to 12. You know, K to 5 is going to this school, and 6 to 8 is going to this school, and 9 to 12 is going to this school, and it eliminates a sense of community, but also it creates these giant behemoths with 2,000 kids and you know, tr you know, trimesters and block scheduling where you just lose kids in the cracks, Right. I think where it needs to start is every school has a maximum of 500 kids and it's all K-12. K-12 for every school, 500 kids, maximum. Start there and then you start creating a more empathetic learning environment where kids don't fall through the cracks, where everybody's on you know, a first name basis and you're not forgetting about things. And um, I think that culture is important. For, forget about the curriculum. Listen, you know, the, the curriculum we're using now is out of date. The technology that we have is um, and it's obsolete. You know, I, I think I think what's never going to change is formative, student-centered teaching and learning. That's that's timeless. And if we can just keep moving in that direction, which I feel like we are, 
Yeah, unless personalized learning decides to rear its ugly head, which it sounds like it might be. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's so easy to put kids in freaking headphones and turn on a computer screen. You know, but because <laughs> that's something we're dealing with. So, uh, you know, and it's and it's it's coming. And and I, I'm a proponent of personalized learning when it's done the way it's supposed to be done. The old-fashioned way, where you listen to kids and you ask questions and you put them in a safe environment to fail and learn. You don't learn how to ride a bike by having somebody teach you how to do it or watching YouTube. You get on the bike, you fall down, you skin your knee, and then you keep getting on. And maybe your dad's going to hold the, the seat for a second. You might not know he's holding the seat for a second, but it's going to be there. And pretty soon, you've actualized and you're riding a bike down the street. And it's magic. It's not magic. It's all by design. You know, so so I think going back to your question about, um, you know, we believe in teacher training. We believe in more teacher training, giving teachers more time to learn. It's just the content. Pre-service is in disarray. Pre-service is, is one of the reasons we have what we have. Think about it. 14 weeks of student teaching. Okay. That's when you learn almost 90% of your habits that you'll carry throughout the rest of your career. And you're usually in a pre-service, you're in a, in, a, in a 14-week student teaching class with teachers that haven't been in a classroom getting professional development in 25 years. So it's this perpetual thing. It's, 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 we're not nimble enough, right? We need to be more nimble. We need to take more risks. I, I agree with the, the criticism of <laughs> the teacher preparation program because my wife recently got, my wife's a relatively recent graduate of getting her credential and master's. And and really, I don't know, I was, I was not super happy with uh, another was she how the program operated on a number of areas, but I would push back on, I think, I mean, cause I look, I mean, going back to the Maslow hierarchy, hierarchy of needs, quality curriculum and instructional minutes are two of the strongest correlates to student success in terms of traditional measures. And those traditional measures are important. So, and I mean, I think before we jump to another system, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I mean, it's one thing like from, for my daughter, I know that if she's, if she's struggling in the traditional areas, my wife and I are going to, helper. We both have the academic background to help her. Or if we can't do it, like if it's Spanish, I'm useless. And she wants to learn Spanish and struggling, we're going to get a tutor or whatever it's going to be. But for the kids that don't have that additional support, when you take out these things, it's like, I think about like global warming. It's like, like my relatives in Louisiana, they're convinced global warming is not real. And I can just say, well, these things are statistically shown to be correlates. It's not proven. It's not proven. It's correlated. But to jump on something that sounds exciting and abandoning the things that we know are strongly statistically important, it, it, that's where I get concerned. But your model doesn't, I'm, it doesn't actually rear that concern because your model is really taking their extracurricular time to build that inspiration in. I'm just concerned about if your model were taken to the core subjects because I think the core subjects, like, I'm sorry, but teaching spelling and punctuation and grammar I'm never going to be excited about that, but that's something that I probably needed to spend more time on when I was in uh, K-12 education. It would have been boring. I would have hated it. I would have complained. I would have tried to get, get got out of it, which I largely did, but that would have been beneficial to me to have that grind of that boring work. Cause I mean, really, unfortunately it, it really is um, something that still matters in the world. And sometimes I worry because because, I mean, you talk to, when I, like, I mean, I don't know if you're, like, list, like, I listen to economics podcasts, and a lot of economists talk about how it, AI, I believe a lot of what you're saying, but it's really speculative about when it's actually going to happen, because it's been being prophesized for a long time, and people always, I think it is going to get there. It's probably going to even get into the social-emotional abilities eventually, too, and then what are humans going to do? 
We can sit back on the beach and philosophize, I guess. But my concern is if we, if we set up kids to only be successful in that world, we may need people to push the papers longer than we think and to, to do the boring pushing buttons and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, when you look at the core, the core skills, I think we need to make sure the kids are still getting those, which your program allows for. I just say that I think the traditional curriculum is important in those core subject areas. So here's, here's, here's an interesting thing. <laughs> we, we've learned a lot in the state of Hawaii through, uh, and I hope you don't have a big Hawaii audience. Um, <laughs> I don't think we have a big Hawaii audience. <laughs> we have had some challenges in Hawaii, both politically and from an educational standpoint. You know, we've, you know, uh, collective bargaining is a disaster and, and um, our facilities are old and, um, you know, we haven't had a legislation, uh, legislature that's been focused on education, but something happened a few years ago, which actually, um, helped us out. We, uh, we ran into a huge budget crunch and it was enormous. And this was, uh, 98, 99 or 2000 when, whenever the, 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 the big crash happened. Um, and State budgets around the country were getting hammered, but Hawaii took a, an interesting approach, and they decided that they would save money by canceling school every other Friday. Nobody went to school every other Friday. Teachers weren't even allowed on campus. Like, it was like, it was like so, so you got to imagine, I, I think it was like 15 or something Fridays out of the course of the year, kids were not in school. And... We were the laughing stock of the country. Parents couldn't believe that, you know, the governor would allow this to happen and heads were rolling. Well, silently, the next year we got our standardized test scores back and it was the biggest increase in the history of the state of Hawaii. <laughs> okay, so, so I want you to think about that for a second. Same test, less time, more improvement. So, you know, there may not be any correlation, probably no causation. I don't think anybody wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole and dig really deep into it. <laughs> but I think one of the things that we learned is that kids just spend too much time in school. Like, yeah, is it important to learn that stuff? Great. But I think at scale for us, you know, when we look 15, 20 years down the road, like, you know, we believe there is a way through, you know, through not bastardizing the personalized learning approach through potentially. Um, so here's, here's, here, we're, we're planning for this, but I think we believe at scale it's project-based learning all day where kids still learn all the things that they need to through experience. Okay. And not through um, lecture. And, and I say these things, but I'm going to tell you, I'm putting my money where my mouth is and I actually have skin vested in this game. So that kid that was locked in that closet over there, he's my son. He's in seventh grade. All right. And I keep telling you and everybody around the world, hey, Moonshot Lab, this is the next great thing. This is going to be awesome. We're going to 20% to 60%. You know, my catchphrase, 20%, 100% of the time. People are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We still need this. We still need that. So I took my son out of traditional education and I put him into a classroom that has uh, in-person classes two times a week. And the rest of it is, is flipped. It's, uh, you know, he, he, three days a week, he's learning a lot of online content. Um, he goes into virtual office hours and things like that. And I'm going to tell you right now, my son is not a traditional student and he is not very good at school history of F's after F's after F's. 
He didn't get A's this year, but he, A, performed better than he ever has. B, has higher satisfaction about school than he ever has. And C, he's been building some pretty cool stuff. Like, I can't tell you what it is right now, but this is his first prototype for wearable technology. Can't, can't let you look any more than that. There's a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of IP around this. There's a lot of IP, but he came in today and we worked on it together. And, and, and this is something that he wouldn't have done normal. Right. So, so I really like, I, I have a tough time swallowing that the traditional way of teaching kids is the best way for, to le- for them to learn traditional content. I think we can just do it in a better way and more meaningful way or at least make the content that they're learning work for them instead of against them. And, and that's one of our many goals at Moonshot Lab. How do we do that? Well, okay, <laughs> this is like, cause this has been like, I've been dreaming of this day because I feel like you two are my both sides of my brain that are like the, the two sides, like this conversation for me, I'm just going to go back as soon as, <laughs> as soon as this is over. I'm going to watch this again because um, I do feel like in the, in the area that we work with, you know, every day it's a battle of our kids being, having a struggle of, of not only school, but life. And um, one of the things you sold me on when you were telling me the story about what the moonshot is, is how involved the community is, how they can create something to help the community, the community invests and how it goes back and you develop, you improve the community through the moonshot laboratory because the kids are giving back. And that's one of been one of my, my most favorite things about thinking about this. Um, my wife, actually, when I told her about this, when I came back from Wyoming, um, she kind of, she kind of deflates. She's kind of like, I have people in my life that kind of deflate what I'm excited about, but she deflated it because she broke it down for me. She's like, George, it sounds like it's like a team. You're making like a sports team and you having people that are kids are who may not like PE, but when they get on a team, they're willing to run the miles they need to, to make the team better. Um, they, they memorize playbooks because it matters because it's something they want to do. And then what you're doing is you're empowering the team to create something bigger than themselves. And that's how you, I feel. You, so we made a week one, the first week the Moonshot Lab was in existence. We did a week one recap of everything that happened in the first five days. Did you guys, were you able to see that? On the website? No, no, we didn't put it on the website. This is something else that we've been sharing. Uh, are you guys able to play YouTube videos through YouTube Live? Or does it look like crap still? <laughs> <laughs> I think it does, but I can add it later. What yeah. How about... You guys take a minute. Actually, it's two and a half minutes. Take two and a half minutes to watch this video. You can, you can mute it if you want. I would mute it on your side so there's no reverb. But I dropped it in the group chat here in the video. And I think this should give you an idea. And this is just the first week that we had in September. So I'm going to kind of give you a narration of what's going on. So this is actually the classroom uh, in action. So you'll um, see them using the spaces. And then we're going to see some things about the kids. So you see the kids running around a camera doing 360 video. And they're just running in circles on the main street, um, putting things together from scratch. So uh, they're building a computer from scratch. Um, the students taught the teachers about virtual reality. So that's pretty, pretty cool to see them teaching their teachers how to use it um, and how it works. And then um, they're using um, coding uh, Raspberry Pis um, to do the things that they're doing. And then the teachers were empowered to take risks. So the teachers were doing it on their own. And there was a couple of tasks that were happening here. And then uh, some of the virtual reality, walking on the moon um, with the, the, the VR 
and so this is kind of a chance to to see how what he's talking about but there's going to be a story here that he's going to talk about um they're doing some teamwork and there's some groups trying to move a cup um, using string uh, to stack them and then the other one is a ball one where they all have to touch it within a certain time for, um, frame and so um, you're going to hear them trying to do this working as teams trying to do this and figuring out a solution to this and the kids from the beginning of the video where they're kind of all on their own start to come together to form uh, group things so uh, if you want to go back this is towards the end of the video uh, 45 minute mark and you'll be able to see this you did it. You did it. <laughs> 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 Why is it awesome? <laughs> like everybody's in teamwork and then like you just get out of your zone like just use creative, stupid <laughs> ideas that <laughs> might just possibly work. Just did it work? Risk. Did it work? Yeah. It worked. Good for you. thought it was impossible. Yeah. And you did it anyway, didn't you? Well, you never gave up. You never gave up. Yeah. So that's just kind of an example of, of what we're trying to do here. What was the one with the shirt? What, were they, what was the, the point of that one? So, so we want, you know, forget about growth mindset. What we're trying to build is a moonshot mindset, right? And the first barrier that kids have is, is, is that risk taking. If you think about a growth mindset, that's what school has always been. You know, you grow from sixth to seventh grade, you have a C, we hope you grow to a B. We ask you for these small five, 10% improvement increments. And you know what? Kids might just give you those five and 10%. You guarantee that they're not going to go beyond that. When we ask, when we ask them to do something that is impossible, we pose a challenge to them. And every one of them says, I can't do it. The teacher said, I can't do it, right? Uh, basically, what they had to do was they had to take um, four balls and there's like five or six kids, and they had to be able to pass it to every single person in the, in the team, right? All six kids had to touch four balls, and they had to be able to put all four balls into a bucket. Sounds easy, right? Then we asked them to do it in less than one second. And... And, 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 and it's, an, it's, an, it's a ridiculous thing to ask. And the, the, before they say we can't do it, they sit there for two minutes and wait for me to finish my sentence. What they don't realize is that I'm done. What they also don't realize is that they're capable of doing it. In fact, what we've noticed is that the kids are better at solving those impossible tasks than the teachers. These teachers have already been ingrained with their limitations and their skill sets. So the kids are outperforming the teachers when it comes to, to solving these seemingly impossible tasks. So, but what's most important is, is that those two kids at the end of that, one kid was like, just do crazy, stupid ideas. This is a place where you can do crazy, stupid ideas. And one of them included using his shirt to solve the problem, whatever resource he needed, right? Um, but what I loved was the last kid with the red shirt. And if you go back and look at the video, um, you'll see him, he's sitting in the you know front row when all the kids are walking on the moon, virtual reality. And the kid's just not engaged. He's, he could care less. He's just sitting there, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes into the moonshot lab. And the first thing I heard when he walks in, he said, this is not school anymore. And then we, go, we take them through the scaffolded approach where we end with this impossible task and the kid accomplished it. And now there's 
There's nothing we ask him that he thinks we ask him to do that he thinks is impossible. He expects to do it himself. And right now, those kids, um, especially that last team, I'll show you real, real quick here. What they've decided to do as part of their, um, this is, so just to keep a few pictures, we lead them through the design process. Um, we engage them with experts. Um, this is an oceanographer from University of Hawaii. Um, they create some paper prototypes, blah, blah, blah. We're doing some 3D printing of star compasses. But this one, those last kids, the kid in the red shirt, the kids with their shirts off, they've decided that for them to learn about navigation, they have to go to Bishop um, Planetarium and you have to pay 20 bucks to go in and not, not every kid can go. And it's not the same if you're just looking at a, a paper map of stars or whatever it is. So they've been working to try and build um, a portable planetarium for a 30 kid class size that kids and teachers can build on their own um, that costs less than $150, including, including the projector setup um, and the display so that more kids in Hawaii can build their own planetarium. And this is a one-tenth scale, can build their own planetarium, learn about you know, those geodesic figures, learn about the mathematics behind this, and then learn about the stars and learn more about their culture and navigation. So, so that kid who thought it was an impossible task is now creating the poor man's planetarium that could ship pretty much anywhere. Wow. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it, it, and it's, it's, you know, it's the norm now. Like if they're not doing this, there's something wrong. Wow. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I just, my head is going right now. Cause I know, um, this has been so long in trying to get this conversation. And then, um, and, and for us, I think it's been a conversation that we've had off and on about like how, um, we're kind of in a situation right now where we're kind of in a budget crisis. We're trying to figure out what, what systems in place work and what systems don't, and then what's best for the kids. And, uh, the, the idea of what you're doing, um, is amazing. And I, I, I don't know, I don't know where you got the inspiration from it or, or well, here's, here's, here's some advice. Okay. And, and I, I was asked, we were doing professional development to try and build 20% time into another school, another public school to help them create their own 20% time. And we're doing PD. And I, I, I was teaching one of their classes. One of the PD models is we, we, we talk the talk, but we walk the walk with their kids. So every teacher's like, oh, no, you're, this might work with your lab kids, but it doesn't work with my kids. My kids are special. And it's such a crock. Every kid's the same. We've done this in Hawaii. We've done this in Kauai. We've done it in Little Rock. We've done it wherever, right? We'll take over the classroom and show teachers that the kids can do it because, number one, it shows the kids that they can do it. And number two, it erases all of those preconceived notions that teachers have about their inabilities for kids. So we're doing it. And I'm these kids, they were elementary school kids. They were just going, it was a crazy loud class and they were on technology and they were asking questions and they were solving math problems and all this stuff. And the teacher afterwards, first she's crying and she says, well, I feel like I just wasted the last 15 years of my, my teaching career. I didn't know. And I feel bad about that. And she said, what do I have to do to help my kids have this experience every day? What do I have to do? And the simple answer is do less, do less. Don't do as much, do less, put it in their hands. Yeah, they'll get, they'll get messy, they'll screw up. You may have some behavior issues, but if they really believe that you trust them to learn on their own, 
where they, they can go f- follow these passion projects, where they're in control of their classroom, where they're not inmates, where they're, you know, where they're, where actually they're, they're the teachers of record. If we make them feel like that and trust them, then I, I think a lot of the problems can go away because our kids aren't perfect. We didn't select any of these kids. We just engage with schools, the school selected. So uh, George is ready to sign up. <laughs> I, I just, I just say, I mean, you, you, you won't, I mean, not that you won me over. I, I like the program when George first told me about it. And I think that the model you have right now, if it was available for my daughter, my daughter's only like one and a half. So he's a little too young for it. But I mean, when my daughter is old enough, I would love for her to have a program like this. The part that I think, I think the area that um, I would start to disagree with you is that I, I don't see 120% time during, to a, turning into 100% time being a successful model. So hey, if, we, if we fall short and we only make 60%, I'll chalk it up as a win. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is, I guess what I'm saying is, I, I think that uh, whatever the percentage is, I think it's great to have that one day a week where the kids have that project, and they see the relevancy. I think there's still going to be a place for explicit direct instruction, and and maybe I'm wrong. I just am. I'm uh, I'm like maybe uh, I'm not an early adopter. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like uh, show me that my, my one of my friends says show me the data when he talks to me because I'm always like. I'm going to go with what the tried and true, what the data says is the best thing to do. And I try to do that for everything in my life. And so for my daughter, for an educational program, for her 80% of her time, I'm going to look at what research shows the most effective educational program for and try to select something for her based on that, which to me right now is a more traditional, explicit, direct instruction, boring, not sexy program. But having the sexy, inspirational part is important I believe for this, for the students and it's something I want for my daughter, but it has to, I think there's a place for the boring stuff. So, so you might be right. Okay. But I'm going to do everything in my power to prove that you're wrong. And I, would love and if, wrong. I don't want anyone support. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. As long as, 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 as that's what we're going to do, right. As long as there, there are those that live in the lunatic fringe that are constantly testing the merits of the existing system and keep poking at it or keep, criticizing it or keep, you know, trying to disrupt it from the inside or the outside, as long as that keeps happening, then I think we're going to find a happy medium. And maybe it's not 20% time, maybe it's 35% time, whatever it is, or maybe it's a whole new curriculum altogether, or maybe it's better technology, but we will never break free of the admittedly broken system that we have unless we take risks and push on it. And I think we've made the decision that we were tired of being part of the problem. Even though we thought we were doing a great job, we just saw just painful classroom after classroom, including our own, including our own. And I think, you know, we said, you said if we didn't try this, we might fail. It's our, it's our own personal moonshot. But if we didn't try it, we would regret it forever. So I hope that you're wrong. I hope that I find a way to, to, to get hundred percent time or have kids be passionate about everything that they do, but you might be right. But I think along the way we'll meet at the right spot. Cause right now we're not at the right spot. I'm doing too much of this. Other teachers are doing too much of this, but we'll get there. I agree with you. And I, even, even the part about uh, hoping I'm wrong, <laughs> I, I would love to, I would love to uh, have an educational system where all students can be successful on on all levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and also engaged in having a good time hundred percent of the time. I just, I, I just think there might be a place, unfortunately for boredom, but I do hope I'm wrong. <laughs> know, know that there are more and more people out there working effortlessly to try and prove you wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
so we're, we're going over an hour and, and I knew this was going to be one of those things that I, I wanted to let this fly out. I wanted to have one last question for you though, is in five years when those kids are out, um, in, uh, in college, in which I'm, uh, what is your, what's your dream in five years? Where do you see this? You know, I, I just think there's, there's, there's a hunger for this. Even if, even if a lot of people, even if it scares a lot of people, um, because this is a very revealing thing that we're, 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 we're doing that we're asking teachers to do that we're asking school districts to do. Um, you know, I would love to see us in, you know, diverse communities across the United States and with each one proving that these kids can do that. Um, we've started in Hawaii. It's the most diverse community that there is. And I know Education Incubator is working hard to grow the program here locally and in other local communities, on other islands, with other partners. Um, and they have a fantastic effort that they're doing. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of room to grow this nationally. You know, we're, there's a lot of money being set on fire in the name of programs that have shown absolutely no st- statistical um, improvement in student learning. And, and you're right. Technology, I don't think, is the answer or has been the answer. But I think um, once we get out of prototype and once we show what kids are capable, because at the end of the day, the data that we're collecting is, is you know, A, what do they learn through the process? And B, are they being effective, uh, effective solvers of community-based problems? And, you know, and I think if we can demonstrate that kids can do that, it'll all take care of itself. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm, I'm betting on the kids. I don't think they're going to disappoint. Like, I love having these conversations because it forces me to we live, we do live in a bubble, um, both, you know, we're most isolated landmass in the world, but also the little bubble we've created for ourselves versus all the opposition that we get around us and all the bad education practices we've had. We literally sat in a conference room for four or five months, day after day, creating this thing and not wanting to tell anybody about it because we knew it was just too threatening and too dumb, the big stupid idea, too risky, too expensive, whatever, whatever the, the, the knock was. Um, but we, we got lucky. And, and to be honest with you, um, you know, part of the entrepreneurial spirit in, in the United States is believing in your own luck. And we want our kids to believe in that luck. Um, some are more lucky than others. Um, but knowing that sometimes if you work hard enough and you stay with it, luck will come your way and that'll push you over the edge. And we've been lucky. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And I don't know if I'm so much the angel as the, uh, maybe the, the devil. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brandon, thank you so much, man. Tell yourself, thank you for letting us for, I know he's been in that room. Just like, <laughs> dad, get off. I need, to go shoot, I need to go shoot some baskets. That's true. He is. He is. Well, yeah. thanks guys. It was fun. Yeah, thanks for talking to us. Okay. Thank you for listening. We will see you in the next episode.